Hey, well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's Sunday morning online Bible study. My name's Adam. I'm the pastor of Faith on Hill. It's a church in Milwaukee, Oregon, and uh, we gather together every Sunday morning for Bible teaching, for worship, for prayer, and for community and connection. Uh, we do meet live and in person every Sunday at 1030. We have a big field next to our building, and so that's where we gather. We put up pop-up tents for shade from the sun. Uh, we bring our beach blankets, our lawn chairs. Um, you know, we wear masks. We stay socially distant. We do all the things we're supposed to do. Uh, but we are in person every Sunday morning. We are also online every Sunday morning, and so we uh, premiere new Bible teaching every Sunday at 1030. 30. Also through the week, we have other opportunities. Um, our small groups will be starting back up on Zoom. Uh, we have the 20-minute Bible study podcast that releases new Bible teaching every uh, Thursday, uh, either in video format on Facebook or um, audio format with Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And as far as announcements go, we have two things. Uh, well, three. So the, the first is this. This Thursday— uh, from 12.30 to 5.30, we have a, another blood drive in our facility that the Red Cross is doing. Um, if you don't know, the Red Cross and other organizations that do blood drives for blood transfusions and other medical procedures, they relied heavily on corporations. Uh, they might go to Adidas one day and have three events at different parts of the Nike campus and be over at Columbia the next week. And these large corporate blood drives are gone because everybody is remote distancing. They can't go to Adidas and Dell and Columbia and Nike and get uh, massive uh, donations that way. And so it got really bad. In fact, I'm told there was a night in June where multiple emergency rooms in Portland did not have enough blood uh, for uh, doing their medical work. And so we have uh, already hosted one blood drive this summer. We have one this Thursday, and then we're going to have one at the beginning of September and probably do more because churches can stand in the gap and fill that vital community need. So you can go to redcrossblood.org, find a drive that's convenient for you. Um, if, if you want, you can search for this Thursday and find uh, uh, if there's a slot left uh, by the time you watch this uh, for donating here at Faith on Hill. Also, we have an uh, opportunity. One of the things that we do is we provide um, a volunteer to be the check-in person. You scan foreheads with the little temperature reader, and then you check them in. And uh, uh, it's, it's a really uh, simple way uh, to, to help out. Um, and we need, we need some volunteers to help. So you can, you can say, hey, I'm free the whole day. I can do it. Or I could come from noon to two, or I could be here from two to five or whatever. Uh, we would love to have the help. Uh, this blood drive and then the one in September. And you can email me, adam at faithonhill.com, if you are able to help. The second thing to talk about is that uh, this last week, we had to uh, purchase um, a, a replacement to a furnace and an HVAC unit. Um, that, that had just run its course, been working for decades, it was time to replace, and so we had to do it. Um, now, fortunately, the church is financially in a place where we can, we can do the monthly payments, but if you have the ability uh, above and beyond your normal giving to give to this so that we can pay it off quicker, 
uh, that would be amazing. That's something to pray about. We're, we don't make a big deal about money at our church, but when I talk about money, it's for two reasons. Either it is in the part of the Bible we're studying, or there is an opportunity to be generous. And so I'm going to mention that and leave that between you and God. The, the final thing is that while we are meeting in person in the field, uh, that can't last forever. We don't live in California. We're in, we're in Oregon. Um, the rains will come. And so we're targeting the Sunday Sunday after Labor Day in September as the first Sunday back in our building. And what we're going to do is we have the ability, because we have a long and large room, uh, we have the ability to create a socially distanced service. And we'll have more details about how we're going to do that safely and uh, making sure we're observing all, all the, the, the public health guidelines. But just be aware uh, that that is the plan. Now, everything could change. You don't know from one week to the next what's going to happen, but that is currently the plan. We are going to continue to have um, online uh, meetings, resources available to people who don't feel safe or comfortable meeting in person yet. And, and so that's where we're at. This week, we're going to continue with our study in the Gospel of Mark. I want to say thank you to uh, our friend, Pastor Bob Middleton for uh, continuing our study through Mark uh, from the Dalles. And uh, my friend Alex, who led worship uh, for the last two Sundays for our In the Field service, he's a part of our sister church uh, down in Salem. And so thank you, Alex, for coming up. Uh, my family and I had a great time on our vacation. Uh, we camped, we swam, uh, we, we just hung out. We went to various local restaurants and um, supported local businesses. Uh, if you can, I encourage you to do the same. Support local businesses and restaurants wherever you can. But I want to say thank you for uh, letting us take the, the last couple weeks off. Uh, we needed that recharge. And uh, as we're gearing up to get back into the fall, I'm um, just so thankful for that time we were able to take. We're going to continue in Mark's gospel, chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And if if you like sermon titles, uh, the title is Death and Taxes. I couldn't avoid it because that's what Jesus deals with. He, he talks about taxes and he talks about the, the resurrection and the afterlife and death. But that's not really what the point of Jesus's teachings were. You want a teaching about taxes? Pay your taxes. You want a teaching about death? Everyone's going to die. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin our eternal death. So if all of us are going to die, all of us need to be ready for that and to have our sins forgiven and to have an assurance of salvation through Jesus. That's the, the greatest thing you could do. It's the greatest news I could tell you. But this morning, Jesus is going to get questioned about taxes and about death, but that's not really the issue. Isn't that how it is? We're arguing over something, we're talking about something, but the, the thing being discussed isn't the real issue. There's a deeper core issue that's really at stake. Starting in chapter 12, verse 13, it says, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He said, 
bring me a denarius. And that's like a, a quarter, right? Bring me a quarter. Bring me a dollar bill. Let me look at it. And they brought the coin, and he asked them, whose image is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. What Jesus replied wasn't so much that amazing. I think they thought they had him trapped. The uh, Pharisees were a religious group. They were a social group. They were uh, moral. They were theologically and politically conservative. The Herodians were a political group. They were the people who were supporters of Herod, who was the puppet king of their occupiers, the Romans. They were hedonists. They were collaborators. They were debauched. They were immoral. How are these two working together? Well, as we look this morning, the big idea is how to stay Jesus-focused in a divided world. How to stay Jesus-focused in a divided world. Verse 13, the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together. That tells you that politics makes for unholy alliances. I went to Russia in 1998. I was 16 years old. And in Europe and in most other parts of the world, the truly public spaces are just that. They're public. In America, most of our truly public spaces are not publicly owned. They're privately owned. And that makes it hard if you want to do a public gospel outreach. But in Europe or in Mexico or in many other places in the world, you can go to the public square, the center of town, and you can set up, it's kind of like our outdoor service. You set up a little sunshade, a little portable sound system. You do some music. Uh, you know, somebody shares a gospel message. And it's been incredibly effective for many, many uh, church plants and, and missions outreaches uh, over the, the last several decades. Well, when I was in Russia in 1998, I was in a city called Nizhny Novgorod. And it's about eight hours east of Moscow by train. And while we were there, the main public gathering point of the city, the main street, the main square, they had uh, farmers markets and, and public events, and this is the place to go. But we couldn't go there. And the reason was this. I was there in 98, so communism had, had fallen six years ago, seven years ago. And I've talked to some of the first Christians to go from Western Europe into Eastern Europe. I, I talked once with a guy named Rod Thompson, and Rod is a, was, he's a pastor now, but he's a, he was a plumber. And in, and in 1990, he was asked to go to Austria to replumb this building that had been purchased uh, to start a Bible college. And so he's there in Austria replumbing this old uh, mansion that had been purchased and was going to be turned into a Bible college. And then communism fell. And Rod and this other guy got in a van and they drove into what had been communist, uh, you know, the Warsaw Pact. I believe they drove us to Yugoslavia. And they never came back. They just started preaching the gospel. And next thing you know, there's a church going. Russia was the same thing. The communism fell, the Iron Curtain fell, and Baptists and Pentecostals and Calvary Chapel and Vineyard and everybody started sending people over. 
people that had been smuggling Bibles into communist Russia for years now had contacts that said, hey, can you come and help us start churches? And they did. And, and by the time I got there, five, six years later, hundreds of churches had been planted and started and gospel outreach was spreading and increasing. And the Russian Orthodox Church and the leaders of the Muslim community and the leaders of the Jewish community in Nizhny Novgorod had gotten together, these three groups that had historically been em enemies, had gotten together because Muslims and Jews and people who had been raised or christened Orthodox Christian but had no Christian faith, they were starting to place their faith in Jesus. And so they got together and said, we need to pressure the city officials to ban public preaching in these areas where we know it's effective. Politics makes unholy alliances. Now, does that mean that I would be unwilling to work with a group uh, that we have disagreements with? Not at all. Uh, if, if there was some movement between like a secular feminist organization and a politically right-wing organization and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and, and they said, hey, we want you Christian churches to be part of this, and the, the movement was to basically shut down the, the gentlemen's clubs, the strip clubs. There's one down the road on McLaughlin, and we're going to shut them down. I'd be all for it because we know it is fact that those establishments are highly linked. They are hotbeds. They are hubs of human trafficking, of, of drugs, of organized crime. If we could shut those down, I'd be all for it. I am totally fine with working together and finding partnerships where we can. That's just reasonable. But the danger is when you get political, if you have a political end, a political goal that is the kingdom of men instead of the kingdom of God, then I will, historically speaking, it's always going to happen. You will form unholy alliances, partnerships, deals with the devil, metaphorically and maybe somewhat literally. And the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the moral compass, the spiritual, you know, they are holding fast to the, what God had commanded his people to do. And here they are because they are so bent on keeping their political power and they are so bent on destroying Jesus that they have made a deal with their oppressors. And they have made a deal with those who are bringing immorality into their land and their people. How does Jesus deal with politics? In verse 13, it says they were trying to catch Jesus in his words. People want to use politics to shut down the church's voice. Do I believe that there are people with a political agenda who want to shut down the Christian witness to our country, to our city, to our state? Yes, I do. I think there's no question about that. I also believe that there are people who politically, it's, it's good for them to claim to want to be pro-Christian until the church says, wait a minute, that thing you're proposing there, that's not, that's not Christian. That's not the gospel. That's not biblical. And then all of a sudden, they'll turn against you. These unholy alliances 
And then the next thing you know, they're speaking against the gospel. And in verse 14, they come to Jesus and they say, Teacher, we know that you're great. We know that you always speak the truth. We know all these flattering words. Why? Because they're lying to him. They're lying. Politicians will always lie to you. Always. Okay, let me take that back. Is there somewhere an honest politician? Yes. In fact, uh, the Republican candidate for uh, Attorney General for the state of Washington is a guy named Matt Larkin. And I've known Matt Larkin, I think, since first grade, second grade, something like that. Uh, I played football with him. I, I graduated from high school with him. I, I know that if Matt Larkin is, is the same dude uh, that he was back in school, then he's a good guy. And, and I have friends who have stayed connected with him who say he's, he's still a good guy. I'm not, in, I'm not saying, oh, if you, you, know, you live in the state of Washington, yeah, there's my buddies, you should go vote for him or anything like that. What I'm saying is, I don't think he's out to lie to everybody, and I, I don't think that, that every politician is lying about everything. But it's interesting that they are lying to Jesus, but they're saying all the right things. They're saying things that are true. They don't believe it. That's the lie. And whenever we expect a politician to toe the, the Christian line, they'll lie if they have to. They'll lie to get your votes. They'll lie to get somebody else's votes. They'll lie about us. They'll lie to us. If we're putting our trust in the human kingdom, we're just going to be disappointed. I say this all the time. I'll say it again. If you come to church for any other reason than Jesus, if you come to church for anything other than Jesus, you will be disappointed. But if you look for hope in anything other than Jesus, you will also be disappointed. So I'm not saying that every politician's a bad, bad woman or a, a bad person. And, and, and maybe somebody who I disagree with on everything in, in politics is a great person and every, you know, they just disagree with me. And then somebody who I agree with on just about everything in politics is like a dirty liar and a hypocrite and who knows. But these guys have made a political alliance. They've come, they're lying and what does Jesus do? He doesn't get involved in their political debate. They're, they're talking about uh, taxes and, you know, being, are we responsible to this occupying force, to this, this ungodly government? Uh, and he doesn't even get involved in that. Yeah, it's Caesar's picture on the coin, give it back to him, it's his. Give to God what's God's, that's everything. God owns this world. God has the right to our, our lives and our obedience. Jesus gave everything. He held nothing back. He sacrificed it all for us. Give to God what's God's. Do you want to stay Jesus-focused in a divided world? Don't get involved in the arguments. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying you shouldn't have opinions. I have very strong personal uh, political opinions. I keep them to myself. Not because I, I can't, but because I don't think it's helpful. And because it's not my main focus. Jesus and his kingdom, that's the only thing that's going to last. That's the only thing that's going to matter. Jesus dealt with politics by staying focused on the kingdom of God. We are coming into the home stretch of a political cycle, a presidential election. And it's going to get messy. It's already messy. It's going to get messier. 
if Christians divide along party lines, then how are we any different from this sinful world? But if we say we are here and we are of the kingdom of heaven, I believe that will carry us through. That there is an attempt to polarize us, to divide us. I can't go to church with them because they're, uh, they voted for Trump. I can't go to church with them because they, they believe in a, a progressive tax system. And, and I can't go to church with this person because they have this viewer. Look at who Jesus' followers were. Simon the Zealot. He would have been a political right-wing revolutionary. Matthew, the tax collector, who collaborated with their occupiers. Look at who Jesus' followers were. Paul, the intellectual. Peter, the blue-collar fisherman. If Jesus, if Jesus can bring those people together, Jesus can bring Christians in our day, in our age, to a place of unity. I believe that how we stay Jesus-focused in a divided world is just that. I'm going to choose Jesus over political arguments. I'm going to choose the people of God over the polarization of sinful people. And then it's not just politics, but another group comes. Verse 18, then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They believed you lived and you died and that's it. And maybe, uh, you know, the traditions of, of their people, the, the temple, God's laws, they were a good moral system or they were a good cultural system or a foundation of unity, but they didn't really believe in any of that. They didn't believe that God was real. They didn't believe in anything. They were secularists. They were progressives. Um, they, they had a philosophical question for Jesus, not a political one. Sometimes the issue isn't politics. Sometimes it's a philosophy question. It's interesting. Uh, I, I know people who are libertarians, and, and politically they're about as far apart as, as you can get, right or left, but they have unity over a, a philosophy. there's a philosophical question being put to Jesus. And their question was an honest one. The Pharisees and the Herodians had gotten together and they were lying. They said a bunch of flattering words, a bunch of words that they didn't believe to try to trip Jesus up. And Jesus just blew past them because he wouldn't engage in their, in their division. The, the Sadducees, on the other hand, come with an honest question. We have a philosophical question. Jesus, your teaching says that God is real. Jesus, your teaching is based, the authority that you have is based on these miraculous signs and miracles. And we don't believe that. You talk about the resurrection. We don't believe that. So here's our honest philosophical question. What is it? Verse 19, teacher, they said, Moses wrote that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, this is what they call the idea of the kinsman redeemer. And it's all through the Old Testament. 
The most uh, notable example is the book of Ruth, which we studied here on Sundays a couple years ago. And the idea was this, that your, your legacy was everything in their culture. And so in the law, what Moses said is, let's say that, that you got married and um, you're 20 years old, 21 years old, you get married and you have a wife and you have no heir, you have no, no children to carry on your legacy. And then you, something happens, you get sick, there's some sort of disease, you get sick and die, you go to war and you're killed and you are left with no legacy. The responsibility was for the next available member of your family to marry your widow and the first child, the first son born is your heir. And then all of the rest of the kids are, are, are the brother's heir or the cousin's heir. It, it, I mean, it got a little like Downton Abbey where you're trying to figure out like who's the next in line, you know. That was the custom of the day. So they said, all right, here's a scenario. Verse 20, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same for the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since they were married to her? Makes me think of my great-grandfather, Grandpa Alex was the last Dalhannock born in Europe, and he was married three times. And in, all of his wives uh, died of cancer, and, uh, but he had three wives. Who's his wife in heaven? That's what they're asking. Hey, here's this hypothetical. There's seven brothers, and the oldest brother dies, and so the next one marries, and he dies, and it goes on and goes on. And hey, this woman's been married seven times. Who's her husband in the, in the resurrection? My, my great-grandfather was married three times. Who's, who's his wife in the resurrection? They have a philosophical question, and it's an honest one. Mark doesn't tell us that they were there to trick or trap. They aren't being deceitful like the Pharisees and the Herodians. But just because it's an honest question doesn't mean it's a good question. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? yes. It's a dumb question. The premise of that question is, is there something God can't do? Yes, there are a lot of things God can't do. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God, God cannot sin. There are a lot of things that God can't do. The, the question being asked is, because they don't believe in the resurrection, so they had set up this straw man argument. Well, obviously the resurrection's a silly idea. And it has all kinds of problems. And Jesus, what is the answer? He says this, verse 24, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Their error was in assuming that the future is like our present. They, they said, hey, here's the situation we're in. 
how does that work in the resurrection as if the resurrection was going to be just like a nicer version of where we're at now? A lot of times people make the same mistake about the past. And I don't have time to get into this, but if you, most of the, the rejection of what the Bible says about our origins and our past makes an assumption that everything uh, a thousand years ago or 10,000 years ago or a million years ago is exactly like it is today. Their mistake was assuming it's exactly like it is in, the, in, the, in eternity, in the resurrection. Scholarship, Christian scholarship, Christian learning without Pentecost leads to apostasy. What that means is this. You can learn all of the spiritual truths, but if you don't have the life-changing power of God's Holy Spirit coursing through you, then you'll just go off into insanity and apostasy. This summer for, for school, I've been reading a lot of old theologians who just went crazy, and it seems the connecting thing was that they did not themselves have that power of God's Holy Spirit in their lives. They only had dead philosophy. He says, you are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. The power of God was not present in the lives of the, of the Sadducees. You can have an honest question. It doesn't mean it's a good question. You can have honest doubts, but it doesn't mean it comes from a good place. On the flip side, you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they're scholars, right? And they didn't have the power of God. They had all the truth, but none of the power. The the. The, fair, uh, the, the Sadducees, they had maybe some, some good things going in their lives, but they, they didn't have truth. There was a group called the Essenes uh, who were like revivalists. They were all about, you know, the, going away from everybody to connect with God. And who cares? Because they're away from anybody. So the power of God in their lives couldn't change anything in their world. I want to know the truth of God. I want to know the power of God in my life. And somebody comes to Jesus trying to divide over politics, and he rejects that for the kingdom of heaven. Somebody comes to Jesus trying to divide over philosophy, and he shows them the foolishness of people and the great wisdom of God. You're, you're assuming that when we get to heaven, it's going to be like it is. Now, maybe that's comforting for you, you know, till death do us part and boom, I'm free. And maybe for, uh, for others, it's like, oh man, I, I, I really like the person I'm married to and I would like to stay connected to them for all eternity. I trust the Lord there. I'm thankful that I am, I am with Angie for the rest of our lives. And then I trust the Lord that he knows what will be best for both of us in eternity. I don't think I'm going to be less connected to her, though. So I'm comforted by that. Here's, here's what I know. There is all kinds of things that could divide us. And what does Jesus do? He says, know the Scripture, know the power of God, know the gospel, the good news message of the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he stuck with. 
There are people who are dying in their sins all around us. There are conservative Republicans who are dying in their sins because they will not bow their knee to God. They will not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And you can repost all the this or that, but Ben Shapiro denies Jesus. He rejects Christ. He rejects the gospel. There are liberals and progressives right now who are screaming for justice and, uh, you know, moral purity. And yet they deny the power of the gospel to change lives. They reject Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life. And you can post all the Sean King videos you want, but he rejects Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. Am I, oh, Adam, you're getting political. I thought you said you don't. I don't. I'm not telling you which policy to vote for, which politician to vote for. But I can tell you this, that we live in a divided world and we need to bring the gospel to a Christ-rejecting world. And if we have a firm focus on Jesus, I believe that we can do that. If Jesus is the most important thing to us, then it won't matter if the person that sits next to us at church votes the same way we do. If Jesus is the most important thing to us, then we will be a church family that is unified. If we focus on Jesus with unity, based on a message of hope, that we can have our sins forgiven, that we are not stuck where we have been, that we have hope for eternity with God, free from sin and division and strife, but also in this life that God can and will change the lives of people. And many of us here are testimonies of that, how Jesus has changed us. If we stay firm, focused on Jesus in unity with a message of hope based on the truth of God's word, not on the philosophies of people, and living in the power of the Spirit, I believe that we can stay Jesus-focused in a divided world. That if the love of God is filling me, do you want to know what the chief mark of the power of God in your life is? It's the love of God. If the love of God is so filling me that I can look past all of the division and I'll say, how can I love and serve someone the best? I believe that's how we can stay Jesus-focused in a divided world. If the truth of God is so, so rooted in me that I can't be swayed by the philosophies or the politics of people. If Jesus is my focus and I say, I want to be where Jesus is and where Jesus is is where God's people are. And that person over there or that person there, that's my brother, that's my sister. That's the reality of God. And Christian unity, right now, I believe this, Christian unity and Christian humility can be two things in which we show the better way, the kingdom of God, that is better than anything this world has to offer. And if we can stand in love and in unity, humble, open and listening with mercy and grace, 
The right's going to look at us and say we're crazy. The left's going to look at us and say we're crazy. But I'll tell you what, we're going to be different. And it'll be better because Jesus is always better. And Jesus did just that. He didn't side with the right or the left. He didn't side with the secular or the moralist. He didn't side with the ultra-religious or the, the ultra-non-religious. He just said, this is who God is. And if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God, and this is the better way. And I believe we can live in that way, to be so full of God's love for us and God's love for people. Amen. God bless you.